Well, good evening. Our reading tonight is taken from Acts chapter 2, from verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it is a joy to be here with you this evening and opening up God's word together. I've loved the last few weeks as the evening service has been launched and as we've begun to find our feet and form an identity. And it's a privilege to be here continuing our series in Acts. Our title this evening is Core Beliefs in a Time of Crisis. That was the title I was given. And I think that refers both to the crises faced by the initial um, original disciples, 
and by us here this evening. We've already heard how Acts is a fantastic book for us to be camping out in. How as we come out of 18 months of lockdown, we can be encouraged and inspired and instructed by how Jesus' original followers came out of their lockdown post-Easter. Out of their lockdown, despite of their lockdown, the early church was born. And if that's not an encouragement to us, then I don't know what is. The main crisis faced by Jesus' OG disciples was that their courageous, if, if provocative, friend, teacher and leader, Jesus, had been crucified. And now that he was risen and ascended, he'd left them to await the Holy Spirit, left them in fear of imminent persecution. So there are 120, we're told in chapter one, who are hunkering down together, committed to the cause. And likewise for us, you don't need telling almost, there are crises raging. COVID has run rampant the last 18 months and affected us all. Brexit sort of there in the background, but ongoing teething problems culminating with COVID in the perfect storm of chaos we've had the last few days. If you've been anywhere, you'll have seen the queues at the petrol stations due to that shortage of HGV drivers. I did a little survey of fuel stations yesterday as I headed out to Surbiton. And uh, sure enough, every petrol station, there were queues and queues. In fact, if I saw a queue, I knew there was a petrol station coming. And either there was a queue or there was a sign saying, no more diesel, crossed out, no more fuel. And I don't know about you, but that is, that is scary. I, I quickly begin to think, well, if there's no fuel, then there's no this and there's no that. And, you know, actually, you know, we don't sort of need fuel all the time, but our lives are sort of underpinned by all these complex things. And I find, I find that alarming. Life is fragile. And uh, I found this passage, actually preparing this, a huge source of comfort as the panic began to rise. So I hope that with me you'll find great encouragement in Peter's message for us. I know I'm not trying to depress us, so um, if you find being reminded of all these crises crisis hard, um, forgive me. Um, humans are resourceful and of course crises come and go, but ultimate comfort and strength are found in Peter's words. And um, regardless of the sort of daily, weekly, monthly, seasonal crisis, there's the ultimate crisis that we'll all face. The crisis that even Jeff Bezos and his investment in long life will one day face. The crisis of death. So let's pray as we dive in. Heavenly Father, please would you open our eyes to the wonder of your word this evening. Amen. As I prepared for this evening, I wondered how best to handle this uh, incredible passage. I wondered whether to break it into three, four, five points, or to walk through the Apostles' Creed, sort of one line at a time, which is effectively what Peter does, although presumably he came first. Um, but actually, what I've tried to do 
um, is to look at this sort of as bigger, part of a bigger picture, part of a bigger narrative, a bigger story. This is the Jesus narrative. It's the narrative of God's salvation plan. In fact, it's the story of all creation. And this is a pivotal, incredible moment. We're not going to dwell on the man behind the address, but I think it's worth acknowledging at the outset as part of our general awe at the work of the Spirit, who it is that stands up and addresses the crowd. If you know anything about Peter, he is gutsy, he's gung-ho. He's going to go for it, but he's more likely to put a foot wrong um, than he is to get it right. And then, of course, there's the, the sort of tragic end of the Gospels where he denies his friend, his Lord. And here he is. If this is the work of the Spirit, then count me in, because here he stands up in front of a crowd and nails it. So let me outline where we're going to go. We're going to have a brief look at how this address fits into the bigger picture and how it relates to us. We're going to see that Jesus rules and reigns and rescues and that in the crises of life, we can turn to trust in and follow him with complete confidence. Okay, so it's Pentecost. 50 days after the Passover, that's what Pentecost means. And the Spirit comes. All of a sudden, this Pentecost morning, as Jews have gathered from far and wide across, from across the known world, something extraordinary happens. The prayer breakfast is taken up a notch. How we wish we'd been there. What it looks like tongues of fire descend on the disciples. And they begin to speak gobbledygook. That must have been how it appeared. The ruckus spills out onto the streets and it transpires that these gathered pilgrims can understand what they're saying. Apparently, they're proclaiming the works of God, the wonders of God in a dozen different languages. And they were perplexed. They were awestruck. And some of them said, they're drunk. And if that, you know, if you can resonate with that, if, if you're thinking, what is the Holy Spirit about? If you were here last week and wondered uh, perhaps what was going on, then this is, this is the continuation. This is where Peter stands up um, and gives an explanation. But it's an incredible moment, an explosive moment in the life of the church, full of the dynamis, the dynamite power of God. And in many ways, it's the birth of the church as the Spirit is poured out. So as the crowds look on, there's a perfect opportunity to explain the spectacle. Peter stands up and begins by saying, of course they're not drunk. We're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. And then he goes on. No, this is what was foretold by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. The spirit has been poured out. They can see it. They can hear it. And Peter is saying this is a sign of the times, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that the last days have arrived. This is a time where the Spirit is available to all, men and women, young and old, high and low. It's a time, it's a day, a long day of salvation, where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. That was verse 21 just before our reading tonight. And then Peter jumps. He jumps to Jesus. And for these God-fearing Jews, what Peter said so far is not particularly shocking. After all, they, they knew God. They were used to calling out to him, calling on his name. But what is shocking is what Peter says about Jesus. He begins, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. And that is in the midst of the spectacle of the Spirit, amidst that last day's urgency to call on the name of the Lord, Peter says, it's all about Jesus. This, what you see in here, is best understood through Jesus. Jesus is nowhere to see, and these are unschooled disciples speaking in different languages. But Peter speaks of Jesus. You'd think maybe he'd speak more about the Spirit, that to these monotheistic Jews, um, he'd speak of God, of Yahweh. They believe in the God of the Torah and in him alone. And it was these Jews who accused Jesus of blasphemy for identifying Jesus, for Jesus identifying himself with God. So what Peter is doing here is outrageous. He's proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. He's saying to these Jews that their Lord, the one they know, the one they've been calling out to, that he's revealed a name for himself, that his name is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. God has made this Jesus, the one they crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Everyone who calls on his name will be saved. So how does this relate to us? I think it relates in two ways, depending on where we're at, how we respond or have responded to Peter's words. It depends whether we've accepted them or not. If we have accepted those words, that God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, then we can shout, Amen. And if we haven't, there's a decision to be made. I found it fascinating and sad and sober in the last few weeks, thinking about this passage and about Jesus as Lord and Messiah, that I have far more often, and perhaps you can resonate with this, I far more often heard Jesus, Jesus Christ, God, used as a swear word, as a, an expletive, a convenient sort of throwaway remark, rather than to revere the one that God, the living God, has made Lord and Messiah. It seems the majority of people that I spend time with um, just sort of trampling Jesus basically underfoot. It seems that salvation is hidden in plain sight. And I think if you were Satan, looking to keep people in your captivity, that would be a great strategy. To have people constantly malign and belittle the one in whom they'd actually find hope and healing, freedom, forgiveness, fullness of life. So there are two 
camps, there are two groups of people. There are those who've accepted Jesus, and there are those who, whether explicitly or not, are pushing him away, treating him um, as these Jews did. So if you haven't turned to Jesus, then the question is, are you going to keep him as a swear word or a convenient expletive, or are you going to turn and trust in him today? Jesus is a rescuer. He's the rescuer, and he reigns. And that's where we're going to get to in just a minute. But in this passage, it's all about Jesus. He is preeminent. He's supreme. He's ultimate. More than Jason Bourne, more than James Bond, more than any other hero or vigilante. Jesus is the real reigning rescuer. And we could stop there. We could sort of land on the, you know, the headline. We could unpack that a bit. But since we're in Acts, since we've got this fantastic address in front of us, then uh, we're going to have a look um, briefly at what Peter says um, about Jesus. So here we have the, the Jesus story in six acts. Um, perhaps you've got it open in front of you or you saw it as we read through it a moment ago. But verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs. He was a man. We've got the incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth was fully God and fully man. He was crucified, handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jesus died. He fully, properly died. And that's something that the world, some, you know, many people would deny, would challenge. There's the swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die, that he just kind of fainted and conveniently was sort of refreshed by the call of the tomb. And I went, um, went and saw Wicked on Friday night and was fascinated by the sort of kind of cross-like imagery of, um, I hope this doesn't spoil it, but there's a moment where the kind of main love interest is sort of carried off sort of to hang out in a field, sort of literally up on a pole to hang in a field. Uh, and then um, the main character, Alphaba, who doesn't want him to die, turns to her spell book and is saying this spell effectively kind of, I mean, it's not Christian, she's not praying a prayer, but you know, she doesn't want him to die. She says this spell, incants this spell or whatever the verb is, um, that he would avoid death, that he'd be, you know, though he was hung on the pole, that his bones wouldn't be broken. And I just thought that was fascinating in light of, kind of what we know about Jesus, that he, he died, he was fully dead, that he prayed, God, Father, you know, if there's any other way, spare me. And yet he fully, completely died for our sake. Our sin was nailed to the death in him. And as a result, he fully comes back to life. We've got the resurrection in verse 24. He doesn't come back as a scarecrow stuffed with straw. But he comes back more physically real and alive than anyone or anything we've ever known or seen. So he's resurrected. And then he's ascended, verses 30, 30 to 33. He's exalted to the right hand of God. And having ascended, he receives the Spirit and pours out the Spirit. 
And I think Peter, from these two sources, from Scripture and the visible signs of the Spirit, is concluding with this shocking statement. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So to unpack that for a second, God, their God, the God of the Jews, their scriptures, their Torah, what we now call the Old Testament, that God has made this Jesus, the man who lived among them, who they knew, had seen, had heard about, who had performed miracles and was crucified and raised again. God has made that Jesus Lord, Kyrios in the Greek, written in the Old Testament with capital letters, as we saw in Jonah this morning. The Lord, the the King, the King of Kings, he's the one who sits on David's throne, the promised descendant. He'll sit on that throne forever. He's the King to whom we owe allegiance, the one that we should want to rule our lives, the best ruler, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. God has made him Lord and he's made him Messiah, which is the Hebrew equivalent of Greek Christos, so Messiah or Christ, anointed one. Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and Messiah. He's God's promised one, come to rescue his people. He's the rescuer or saviour or hero. I used to love baptism services growing up. After a time of testimony, the candidate would walk down, round from the lectern where they'd shared with their story, they'd go into the pool, and there'd be a final few questions before they took the plunge. And the final climactic question used to give me goosebumps. They'd be asked, what then is your faith? To which they would respond, Jesus Christ is Lord. And the rest of us would respond, he is Lord indeed. And under they went. There's nothing more thrilling than declaring the lordship of Jesus Christ and doing so publicly. It's fascinating that Peter here emphasises that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. It's not one or the other, it's not one over the other. Through scriptures, through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, the events of Pentecost, God has made Jesus publicly, in fullness, what he already was, Lord and Messiah. And I think that's helpful for us to sort of um, be reminded of this evening. I think whenever there are two sides to something, we lean one way or the other. We're told Jesus is full of grace and truth. And some of us prefer grace. Some of us prefer truth. But he's both, and so are we called to be. Likewise, Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And in our Christian story and how we interact with him, perhaps one of those is easier for us to digest, to accept, to live with. But he's both, and we need to acknowledge him as such in our lives. The baptism liturgy asks, do you turn to Christ as saviour? And do you trust in him as Lord? Those two produce different responses, and I think the baptism liturgy helpfully acknowledges that. Messiah or Christ evokes the awareness that Jesus is our rescuer, which we acknowledge by the Spirit and we praise him for. 
and Lord perhaps is more challenging. I think, you know, we can find it easy to accept that we need a saviour and to be grateful that Jesus is, is the one. But Lord perhaps is more challenging. Lord sort of requires a daily decision, not just a, a thankfulness that we've been rescued, but a, a decision to submit, a decision to bow the knee before Jesus, our Lord, to come to him daily and say, Lord, I'm yours. How would you have me live? Your kingdom come, your will be done. And to receive our, our orders from him. And in a culture where everybody is their own king or queen, this is super challenging. But that's where Peter goes. God has made this Jesus Lord and Messiah. And the final part of the Jesus story is what comes next in verses 37 onwards. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? So the sixth part, the final part, is this. Our move. Our turn, our time to respond. God has done his bit in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Now it's up to us. Is he calling you this evening? Are you, are we blocking him out or keeping him at bay? Peter says the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The promise is for everyone. If he's calling you, if you're cut to the heart, Peter says, repent and be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus rules and reigns and rescues. In our crises, we can trust in him. He is the one on whom we can call and be saved. And if you want to respond like that this evening, if you want to repent and be baptised, well, you can repent right now or this evening in the quiet of your own room. You can repent in the stillness of your own heart. You can pray to, to him, to God. You can turn around and say, Lord, I'm sorry for rejecting you as ruler and rescuer. And I want to live for you. I want to live with you. And if that's you, we would love to, we'd love to hear, we'd love to celebrate that. And we'd love, to, um, we'd love to offer you baptism. Repentance happens in the quietness of our hearts, but repentant, uh, baptism is where we stand up publicly and make that confession that Jesus is our Lord, our Messiah. And Rupert or I, one of the team, we would love to talk to you about that and to offer that to all, who, all who'd like to explore that. Baptism is where we declare publicly our faith and join God's family. Or perhaps you've already responded. Maybe you've repented and been baptised recently or years ago. Who then perhaps is the Lord putting on your heart to share this message with? Who is it that needs to hear that Jesus is Lord and Messiah? Who is it that in the crises around us needs that firm foundation, that rock and refuge.
So let's be encouraged. Let's praise God and rejoice in the fresh start that his forgiveness allows. And let's enjoy the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening and we thank you for these words that are recorded for us in Scripture. Thank you for this wonderful news that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, that as we read the Old Testament Scriptures, as we witness and read about the work of your Spirit being poured out, we can understand that, we can make sense of that in light of Jesus and who he is and what he continues to do in these days. Father, we're sorry for when we push him away, for when we reject him. And we want to turn again to him, to acknowledge him, to um, put him in his rightful place in our lives as Lord and Messiah. We ask that we'd enjoy together the forgiveness of our sins and the wonderful gift of your spirit, now and always. Amen.